right, y'all ready to do this? If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 13, almost at 12. Luke 13 for me, we'll dive in. Uh, Before we do, just a couple housekeeping things, not housekeeping or things, but really exciting news to catch up everyone on. Um, I don't know why I said housekeeping, that sounds bad. Some housekeeping things, if someone would clean the bathrooms for us. Um, so last week we rolled out this huge announcement to you guys, and so um, I know some of you weren't here. Uh, I just want to catch everyone up, make sure on the same page. Back in January, we did our first elder staff intern retreat, um, where we just took a hard look at who God has wired us to be, uh, where we're doing good, where we're falling short, short based on Scripture. Short, oh my goodness, that is, this is going to be a good morning. Short. Um, and so here's kind of where we compile to, uh, that scripturally we're called to make disciples. That's, that's it. We're not called to make churches. We're not called to grow churches. We're called to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. What would that actively look like if we did that, um, and, and how are we doing in this process? And so um, first step, and we've always committed that the way we make disciples is through missional communities. Um, so we said within the next year, we want 100% of our membership, 100% of you uh, that are sitting in this room to be within a missional community. And then when we started dreaming, okay, well, if, if we're actively doing that, then what's going to take place in the next three years? Um, that if we're making disciples to make disciples, um, we are all in on the local church. The next step would be for us to um, start planting churches. If we have um, overabundance of disciples in this room, um, Jesus mentions 44 times in the Gospels the word sent. So we say, okay, what if it looks like if we just started sending these disciples out to plant healthy churches? God has given us a burden for college towns. Um, so we said, okay, within the southeast, let's start sending out some of these disciples to make disciples in other college communities in the southeast. Um, so in three years, let's go for three. That if we make disciples every two years, then that means that we should easily be able to send out three churches within the next three years. And there's a lot of details of how that works. So we just kept dreaming. He said, okay, well, if we could do three in three years, what if we could do 10 in 10 years? Um, so we set the vision as in the next decade, um, the branch church is going to grow into the branch network. We'll have 10 churches that are comprised of 10, uh, or 10 churches within the 10 network Paul, I'm just looking at you for a second. I just need to refresh my mind, and you are beautiful. <laughs> so within the next 10 years, we're going to have a network of 10 churches solely by making disciples every two years. Um, that is kind of the strategy that we feel like God has called us to do within college communities in the southeast. And so last week, we rolled out that it's time for us to send out our first disciple to go start a church in Milledgeville. Um, So Kyle and Jen Worthy are going to be moving to Milledgeville this summer um, to partner with an existing college ministry that's there, kind of oversee them and take them over and and plant a church in Milledgeville. So um, August of this year, I think we're looking at like August 26th, and we're going to launch the Branch Church Milledgeville. Um, which is a huge step for us. We're so excited to see what God is doing and all the provisions that he's taken in that. Uh, but here's where kind of we all fit into this. Uh, one, we're all committed to pray. Two, we're all committed to look at the example they've set for us and go, man, if they can do it, we can do it. Uh, but three, and we talked about this last week, uh, we're asking some of you guys to move there. Uh, we're asking some of you college students to tra- your degree from UNG or Georgia College State is going to be the same on paper. So would you think about, would you pray about transferring down to Milledgeville and help start the branch Milledgeville? And this week we've had probably four or five people go, hey man, I just want you to know as a church, like we're praying about that. We're considering going with Kyle and Jen. We're considering what that would look like for us to go down there and help start a church, um, which is phenomenal to see. 
Um, so we'll, you'll hear a lot of news about this and, and the progression that's taking place over the next couple weeks um, with more details. And we went down there Thursday night. Their college ministry meets on Thursday night, so we were down there Thursday night to roll out the news to them um, and just kind of hear some Q&A. But, but those, it's about a group of 60 to 80 college students are fired up about having a good, healthy local church in Milledgeville. And so we're just excited about that process. Um, so if you were here last week, you heard that we announced Kyle and Jen and all that was going through. Um, and I'm going to ask Matt to come up here real quick. Uh, part of the exciting news about Kyle and Jen was not only Milledgeville, um, but you guys know, a lot of you know Kyle and Jen, um, in about three and a half years. They got married the weekend before we launched here. So September, Labor Day of uh, 2014. Um, and from that moment, they hit the ground running on trying to have a baby. I mean, they wanted it. They knew that's what God had asked them to do. And uh, time and time again, it just wasn't working. So it, we're coming on three and a half years of them going through tests and procedures and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so Kyle stood right here last week and said, listen, uh, could you guys, yes, be praying about Milledgeville, but also like there's a chance that we could adopt a baby from California. Um, could you guys pray for that as well? Um, and so Sunday was here. It was great celebration. A Sunday afternoon, they received a phone call. Hey, baby's ready. You guys are the people. Um, get your backs packed and come to California to pick up this girl. Um, so if you're on Friends with Facebook, like you saw, this is beautiful process taking place. Um, if anyone knows anything about adoption, here's two things you know. It's crazy expensive, um, and it's always inconsistent. Um, that you never quite know until you have the baby in your possession, like if this is actually going to take place. Uh, and so Thursday night was great. Kyle and I went down to Jen and some other Sydney, and my wife went down to FAM, announced everything. Kyle got an opportunity to speak in front of these people as their pastor. It was just an incredible experience to see. Uh, Friday afternoon, they're packing their bags to leave for California Saturday, and they got the call that it fell through, um, that the adoption is not actually going to take place. And, I mean, you can just imagine three and a half years just pressing and praying, uh, and, and it didn't happen. Um, so so if, if you're not friends with them, go. They've made this incredible video on Facebook just to explain um, how they are hurt and broken, but at the same time, they're fully trusting God for what he's doing and what he's up to. And, um, but we just want to take a moment to catch you guys up on that. So they are not here. They needed some time just to pray and rest and uh, rejuvenate. Uh, so if you could just do me a favor, I mean, I know Kyle's going to listen to this podcast because that's what Kyle does. Uh, but over the next week, like, if you need anything, just call me. If you have anything that has anything to do with Kyle, just let Kyle be. Let Jen be. Let me be the first point of contact on anything um, that he oversees until they get back on their feet. But I asked Matt, who's one of the elder, but has also been in a DNA with Kyle for three years, yeah, since the beginning, um, just to come and just have a moment of prayer over them, uh, and then we'll dive into the sermon. So if you want to say anything, if not, just pray and we'll go. Lord, um we love you and we trust you. And we know that uh, all of your promises are true, that you are faithful to your children. And we know that it is true when you say that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Uh, we know that that is Kyle and Jen. We know that they are um, they're packing everything to go and be obedient to, to your calling. And so, Lord, um, in the midst of everything that has happened and um, years of longing and then um, having expectations set and then that not following through, um, I know that, that we as a church body and Kyle and Jen specifically are grieving and, and hurt and that it's difficult. 
Um, but I know that I speak for them in saying that, that Lord, we trust you and that we, we know that you are good, that you are always good and that you are always faithful. And so, um, Lord, I, I ask that you move on their behalf to comfort them, to remind them of your love and of your goodness and to remind them of, of your sufficiency that when our heart and our flesh fails, that you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Lord, that you are what we need and that you provide everything that we need. Um, So I ask that for Kyle and Jen, that you provide them with that comfort and um, assurance that that you are trustworthy and that you are here with us in the middle of sorrow and and heartbreak and difficulty. Um, But then ask, Lord, also that, that this is not the end of that story. Um, so we ask, Lord, that, that you would work this together for their good to, um, to help carry through and follow through with uh, the burden that you have placed in their hearts of adoption, being parents, and, um, and growing a family in, in a faithful and biblical way. Um, so we ask, Lord, that you, you don't end that story there whether it is through adoption or through pregnancy or um, however you see fit, Lord. That's, that's a cry I know of their own heart, um, but I ask that myself as well, Lord, that, that you provide for them a way to be parents, which is something that they feel convicted to do. Lord, whatever your will is in this situation and in all things, we trust you and we know that um, that your will is right, that your will is good and perfect. And so we submit ourselves to you, Lord, in, in every way. But we ask that you remind them of your faithfulness and that you provide uh, so that we can celebrate and so that we can glorify you for those things. Lord, we trust you, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Um at some at some level with the network and and I know I flew through a lot of that stuff I'm sure you guys have questions um, just look, if you're an elder raise your hand real quick um, just ask one of us we can explain the whole process um, there's there's one quote that we found that just helped explain the best uh, for us what we're trying to achieve and um, it's this the vision was to stop becoming a lake church and instead become a river church and in a lake church, people flow in and stay that seeks to get more and more people around one pastor in one place. But in a river church, the people flow in but keep moving downstream. God takes them to other places to minister. The measurement becomes about flow rate instead of volumes contained, about gallons per minute instead of gallons retained. And so for us, our vision is just, it's just that, that we, don't, we have no interest in growing this thing right here to 15,000 people and getting on the church. I mean, I, I've talked to, we kind of mock as a staff the, the fastest growing church list. Like that's, I just don't see that in scripture. Um, we obviously a call to make disciples in scripture and that's what we're gonna do and whatever God decides to bless, uh, love it. Um, but if you could just do me one big favor. Um, we, we were very conscious about this walking into this process um, and we're really starting to feel it. We knew that uh, anytime we put a stake in the ground saying this is what we're doing, this is where we feel God is leading us to, um, there's always attacks, there's warfare, there's everything. Um, so over the past couple months, just as a staff, we've been saying, hey, let's be ready for this. Let's be weary of this. Um, let's look for everything. Let's make sure that, that if we're not a cohesive unit, then the church isn't going to be cohesive. Um, so let's keep our guard out for anything that could divide 
about us as a whole. And so that is my prayer for the church as well. Uh, but if you would pray that over the staff, pray that over um, the elders, pray that over the Millersville team as they're getting funded and getting ready to go, um, that would be a huge blessing to me uh, and to the church because we have, we have felt it already that we say, hey, here's where we're going. And Satan goes, no, you're not. Um, but we know the King of Kings, right? Uh, so, Enough about all of that. <clears throat> as we, like you said, Luke 13, uh, as we've been going through Luke, here's what we want to know. We want to know who the King of Kings is. We want to understand who Jesus is, what he's come to do. Um, a lot of us have grown up in church, and we'll see this morning that, that maybe that's almost been to our detriment, which I hate to admit, but um, we know enough about Jesus, but do we actually know Jesus? Um, so one theologian said that Jesus in the book of Luke is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. Um, so we just kind of titled, as we've been preaching through, it's about two and a half years of us going through the book of Luke, um, what would it look like just to sit down and have a meal with Jesus, to know his character, um, to know his love for us, to understand all of that. So um, the purpose in preaching through the book of Luke is just that, that we want to know if Christianity is built around Christ, um, do we actually know Christ or do we just know some about Christ? Um, so we'll pick it up in verse 10, Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now he, being Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, let me just stop here. We'll kind of read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. Um, the synagogues were all over the place. This is not the temple. So we just have to make a clear distinction from the beginning that the temple was the big thing that you had to be the elite of the elite Pharisees to teach in there. All the sacrifices were taking place in there. But, but the synagogues were spread all throughout the communities that were ran by just a group of lay elders that oversaw this area. So um, everyone in this community would go to the same synagogue. It was built for the Jewish people. So it was just a smaller environment um, to teach in a smaller place to worship in. Um, it was not regulated like the big temples were. So within a community of a synagogue, um, everyone knew everyone. Does that make sense? I mean, it wasn't big. It wasn't massive. They, they all knew each other. They all worked and lived together in this own little community. And so Jesus knew that if he was ever going to preach to his people, the, the Jewish people, this would be the atmosphere to do it in. So a lot of Sundays you would see Jesus teaching within different synagogues, um, spread around teaching to his people. And on this instance, it was on the Sabbath because that's when they came together. Um, now, here's just a couple things to, to get our minds around. Um, this will be the last time Jesus teaches in a synagogue. This is it. That conflict is about to arise. Um, and, and as we've seen throughout the book of Luke, um, Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. That everywhere he was going, he was dividing people which is kind of contrary to maybe what we understand. Oh, God is just love, and he brings everyone together. He, he does based on the truth, but it is a very clear truth that will separate right from left. And in this conflict, uh, there's about to be some separation. Verse 11, And behold, there is a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you were freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now, just set the scene, because so, so often we read Scripture like it's just a good book, like it's just a novel. Now, but this actually happened, right? So Jesus is preaching. This woman that could not stand all the way up was probably somewhere in the back. She didn't want much of attention. She didn't want to be noticed. And Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, said, no, no, lady, come here. 
you are, you are, I've got plans for you today. Walk up to the front. Now, you could just imagine small town community. Think of maybe your church growing up, all the whispering and gossip that's starting to play, take place. What is, what is he doing calling this girl up? What is he doing? Don't, doesn't she know that like, there's some disabling spirits, like demons got her? What, what is he doing calling her up? And not even does he speak truth over her, but he touches her, he heals her, and she stands up, and the immediate response is she starts to glorify God. Now, if you were in this midst, wouldn't you go crazy? If we saw this Jesus guy that we had heard all these stories about, all these rumors about, then he's in your midst and he heals this woman, wouldn't your immediate response be to praise God for what he's just done, to glorify God? But, uh, but that's not what typically happens. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, again, just a lay ruler, just a, a good man, but the ruler of a synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, listen, he's not talking to Jesus. He is a coward. Jesus is standing here just to just heal this woman, and so now he's addressing the people. There are six days in which you work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath day. So indignant, meaning he was feeling or showing anger and annoyance at what he perceived to be unfair. So he's going, listen, this is the Sabbath. This, is, this Jesus guy that just healed her is wrong in healing her on the Sabbath. If you want to be healed, come six days of the week. Now, do you really think that this woman who had had this problem for 18 years go, oh, dang, I wish I would have thought about that. In the last 18 years, it never occurred to me to come get healed not on the Sabbath. You're right, Pastor. I'm, I'm glad you said that. My bad. I'm just going to bend over for the rest of the day, and I'm going to come back tomorrow, and you can heal me not on the Sabbath. Does that sound good? It was just ludicrous that this man didn't even address Jesus. He was so cowardly to try to push Jesus out of the picture and go straight after the crowd going, no, listen, this is wrong. What Jesus has just done is wrong. That's a, that's a pretty big charge. Now that we know the rest of the story, this man accuses God of being wrong. This is not how we choose to operate here, God, so you need to fix your stuff. Now, what he's coming at, what he's quoting from, is a, a true and real um, commandment. If you, you don't have to flip there, it'll be on the screen, but Exodus 20, 8 through 11, um, says this as part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath in your Lord, to your Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servants or female servants or livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and has made it holy." Now, I wish that we could just stop and really dive into the Sabbath. One of the things that I'm constantly, and if I said raise your hand, there would probably be hands going up, especially college students. When you come in here, I'm asking, hey, when's your Sabbath? When are you resting? When's your Sabbath? When are you resting? Oh, preacher, I don't have time for that. Like, uh, you make time for that. That is not a, a suggestion. That is a commandment. You Sabbath, you rest. Because what Jesus, God is getting at through the Ten Commandments is, you're not all powerful, I am. So when you sit and you remember for a day what I've done and what I will continue to do, and it's not up to you, it's up to me. 
So this Sabbath is, gets really twisted, though, from the beginning, and this is what the religious leaders did. Uh, everything that God initiated is good and right and true through the commandments. They would add and add and add and add and add on to this thing. So there's a book called the Talmud, uh, which comprised all of the Jewish rules and regulations that they had taken from the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial laws and just expounded upon these. Um, it was said that one Pharisee, it took him two and a half years to understand all that they had required to happen on the Sabbath. Two and a half years for him to understand, okay, here's what the Sabbath means and here's how I rest. Here's just a couple to get you kind of understanding on uh, all that they had added on to do not work on the Sabbath. Now, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet. So the Sabbath was on Saturday. For, so from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night, you cannot travel more than 3,000 feet unless you're going to get food. So if you're going to get food, you could walk 3,000 feet and then walk back. So what some of the Jews would kind of get around this, like if I want to go hang out with the Pattersons, I'm just going to leave some food at their house and then say, no, I was just walking to get my food. And the Pattersons happened to be there, so I hung out and then I came back. Right, so there's just ways to manipulate them. Um, that wherever there are narrow streets, like if there was a building on both sides, um, the Jews on the Sabbath would take a piece of rope or a piece of wood and put it down, and then that would give you another 3,000 feet because it was like you're walking into a house. Right, like that's just the way they cheated some of this. Um, there was 24 chapters in the Talmud about sabbatical laws. Um, no burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig or half a fig carried two times. If you threw an object in the air with one hand and you caught it with the other, you have just sinned on the Sabbath. But if you threw it and caught it in one hand, you're good. So if you're a Jewish juggler, you're in trouble. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the food and return and not return his arm. So if he reached out to get his food on the Sabbath, Sabbath time came, He'd have to drop the food and he'd have to walk around all of Sabbath like this. Could not do anything with his arm because that would be required, or that would require work. Um, no clothing could be examined lest you find a lice and inadvertently kill it. Uh, wool could not be dyed. Cold water could not be poured on warm, but warm or cold water could be poured on warm, but warm could not be poured on cold. Um, in Jerusalem, in the desert, you could put an egg out in the sand and it would boil itself because it's that hot. Nope, not allowed. If a candle was lit, you couldn't blow it out. Um, chairs could not be moved because there might be a rut. Um, women could not look in a glass or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. So you're not even able to look in the glass because you might see something and want to work. Are you kind of catching on to this? A radish could not be left in salt because it would make a pickle and that's work. I mean, it's just the list is extensive of what these guys, and, and, and I want to be sensitive here, because at some level, I can see some of this being good and right and true. That on the Sabbath, God said, we should not work. So let's hold each other accountable to that. But it has gotten out of hand. If it took one, I mean, a Pharisee, a guy that this is all he did with his life, two and a half years, to understand the rules of the Sabbath, it's gotten a little bit out of hand. So when Jesus is healing this woman on the Sabbath, he had done nothing wrong. There was not work involved with that. He spoke truth over her, and God healed her. Verse, 20, or verse 15, then the Lord answered him. So pastor stands up, uh, does not address Jesus, 
preaches to the crowd, you should not work on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So Jesus goes back and says, listen, this woman has been afflicted for 18 years. This woman of Abraham, meaning she was a Jew, this is one of your own. She's been in your community for 18 years, and you take care of the animals way better than you take care of her. So no, I'm not wrong. You're hypocrites. You've taken what was good, and you've manipulated it into what is sinful. If you flip over, we're not going to read it, chapter 14, 1 through 6, almost the exact same exchange. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees and Sadducees lose their mind because that is against the rules. That is against the rules. So uh, what is going on here? What what does this mean for us? Uh, Because we've got to look at the story. Um, One of the things I love to see is who people identify with in in the scriptures. Um, So you've got this this pastor man, the overseer of the synagogue. You've got this woman who has just been healed, and you've got Jesus. Now, spoiler alert, everyone look at me. You're not Jesus, okay? Don't identify, don't try to say, oh, I'm Jesus-like in this area, I'll just go ahead and take that one for you. You're not Jesus. Deal? Okay. You're not Moses. You're n- no, okay. That's a whole other tangent. Uh, Jesus is the better all of those. You're not that guy. We're way off, worse off than we think we are. So who are we then? Are we the woman that's been afflicted for 18 years and has just received uh, what would later be known as salvation, right? Because of this healing, she's now a follower of Christ or are we the guy all obsessed about rules? Are we going, no, no, listen, Jesus, that's not how things work around here. We can't do it that way because, so James is very clear. If you have, a, if you have your Bibles, flip over to James 2. Um, James 2 is very clear on this subject and, and where I think um, the scriptures are leading us to. And the whole juxtaposition that James is teaching through is this idea of faith versus works. Faith versus works. So, so what is it? Do your faith drive your works? Do your works drive your faith? Uh, what, what is taking place here? James 1, 18 through 22. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God is one. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works that when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22 is where I want to camp for a second. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So another way to get at what he's asking here, what James is pressing into, is, is what is your doing saying? So at some level, you are all sitting, yes, it's a gym, but this is the gathering of the church. You're all sitting here this morning. What is your doing saying? As you leave, some of you maybe prayed this morning on the way here. You maybe got up and read scriptures this morning. Um, as you go throughout the week, you're going to do spiritual things, right? So, so what is your doing saying? 
So a lot of us, we've heard this, faith without works is dead. Um, you gotta show me your faith by your works, that what's on the inside of you should change and should affect the way that you live. And I would say yes and amen. That's exactly what James is preaching. But I think there's a whole other category that Jesus is revealing to us, that it is possible for us to have works without faith. That it is crystal clear that the Pharisees and the religious leaders um, and the elders of this synagogue had tons of works. They were killing on works. They had everything figured out. The people around were so jealous of these guys and how perfect they were doing the law. That if you want to look at someone, they could just look at these guys, they would make you feel foolish for your attempt to follow Christ. But they had zero faith underneath any of that. And the proof of that is when Jesus is in front of them, they missed it. I mean, I just, I just cannot fathom the fact that they saw a miracle take place over and over and over again, and they justified it away because of their own man-made rules. You, Jesus, can't do that. You, Son of God. I know you are the Lord of the Sabbath, but you cannot do that. Now, for a lot of us, and I don't have to raise hands, a lot of us have grown up in church, and again, I'm grateful for that. I'm excited. that I mean, that is the two out of my four kids are in here this morning. I'm excited that my kids hopefully will grow up to always know and understand the gospel. But we have to be really careful about what that means. See, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11 is like the heroes of faith and just outlines all that takes place. Some heroes won and shut the mouth of lion. Some heroes lost and were devoured by the lions, but both were faithful and obedient. And that's what the gospel is trying to teach us. So we get to Hebrews 12 and right at verse 1 and 2, it talks about the sin that easily entangles us. The sin that easily entangles us. And, and we, if we could just be honest, and I hope you guys join DNAs and can do that there. It's easy for us to admit the sins that we just cannot get over, the sins that we keep falling back into, a comfort sin, a power sin, a control sin, an approval sin. We we constantly go back to that. But the sin that we never really talk about that entangles us, which, which I would argue is almost worse than just outright disobedience, is when we have all these works and we have no faith behind it. When we're doing and saying the right thing and everyone around us thinks we're spiritual, but we ourselves know that we're not. Now here's where it gets really hard, and we're gonna try to dissect this a little bit, but here's where it gets really hard, because you are doing the right things, and you are saying the right things, and those people right now, to your left and to your right, think that you're spiritual because of what you do and what you say, but you know that you're faking it. Do you think that the religious leaders of the day knew at some level they're just putting on a show to win the approval of man? I mean, who, who doesn't like that? Who doesn't at some level like to be put on a pedestal, like to be raised up, like to be complimented, like for people to aspire to be like them? So you get a little taste of that and it just keeps going and keeps growing and this pride keeps welling up inside of you. But it isn't faith that's leading to works. It's approval that's leading to works. You might not know the gospel. That the faith inside of you is not what's driving your works. It's your performance. And and I could, at some level, probably get there pretty quick with some of you, if you were honest enough with me. If I would just why you to death. Why did you come here this morning? Why did you read your Bible this week? Why did you feel guilty when you did this? Why do you pray? Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? Maybe it's just because my kids are in this Y stage and I'm just used to it. 
But if I could get you down to the very bare bones, if that does not lead you back to faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, then I'm pleading with you, are you living the life of a Pharisee? Are you living the life of works, not faith? There's a term that we kind of throw around a lot. Is this called legalism? And this is what it means that you're doing all these works and all these right things, but you're doing it for the wrong motives. I mean, there's just tons of examples. I'll try to limit myself to a few. Um, we had a couple students when we first launched the branch, um, we would meet on Sunday nights. Sounded really good at first. It's a horrible idea about a year in. Um, so we finally got to move in here and everything is better because I can take a nap. I can watch the masters. Just everything is good. There's no spiritual reason for it. It's just better, right? So uh, the master's coming up a couple weeks. Rob Staples' house, master's party. We will be there. Um, yes, anyways. So when we moved to Sunday mornings, everything was better. But Sunday nights, we had probably a handful of students that their parents, this, just, this will kind of open up a dialogue, their parents would not allow them to skip church on Sunday morning, even though they were going to Sunday nights. So even though they were faithful members of the branch on Sunday evenings, their parents would still say, no, 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 that doesn't look good by you skipping out on a church on Sunday morning, you need to be there. Now, is that faith leading to works or is that works leading to approval? So this legalistic stuff that we have inside of our minds, or here's another one, especially within college students. Um, you're so busy doing spiritual things, but is that what you're actually called to do? So you go from church service to church service to church service to Bible study to Bible study, night of worship, this and that and this, this conference and that conference and this conference. Okay, um, is that really genuine? And here, this, you have to answer. I can't answer this for you. Is that genuine hunger and thirst for Scripture or is that what you think Christian college kids are supposed to do? You're just following along with this kind of idea of this is just what we do. Look at all these works. Look at what I've done. I've done this mission trip and that mission trip and this mission trip. I don't actively make disciples like I'm called to do, but I can tell you I've been to every country in the world. Is, is that really it? Is that really what we're called to do is go everywhere but, but live like a pagan when we're home? What is this, what is your doing saying? Are you doing good things? Nothing's wrong with going on a mission trip. Nothing's wrong with joining a Bible study. But what is the motivation behind it? Is it faith that's driving that decision or is it approval? Faith without works is dead, yes, but works without faith is just as dead. So what is it? Here's, Here's another one. Evan sent me this article this week and uh, really kind of convicted me, especially because this bald-headed dude sitting right over here. Um, when I was uh, a youth pastor in Gainesville, it was Tyler and a couple other guys that we were just kind of doing this discipleship thing. And I vividly remember Kroger on Highway 60 in Gainesville sitting and listening to these guys talk. There's three of them for about an hour and a half. And here's what was being discussed. Uh, theology, dead guys, uh, all this good stuff around the Reformation, all these things that were taking place in these heroes of the faith. Here's what was never mentioned in an hour and a half conversation. Jesus Christ. And I remember getting in my car and going, what have I done? What have I done? If these guys can quote John Calvin more freely than Jesus Christ. What have I done if these guys have a greater respect for Martin Luther than the God of the universe? What have I done? See, theology is incredible. Theology teaches us the deeper waters of our faith, but if we're not careful, 
Theology actually leads us farther from God than it does closer to God. Uh, On Desiring God this week, they had an article about this, and, and here's one of the quotes. Knowledge about God can replace an authentic knowing of him to our destruction, especially for the theological revine and convinced. We should all want our theology not to be not only true, but spirit-filled and fruitful. So do, am I telling you that theology is bad? No, 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 by no means. I love sitting and talking and considering and pondering theology. But if we're not careful then our theology is going to lead to us being puffed up in our own knowledge, in our own worldly advice, and we're actually moving farther away from Christ than we are closer to him. But here's what I know. I can stand in front of you and quote all this theology and all these dead guys and all these, and you're going to think I'm the smartest guy in the world. You go, man, you should listen to this, our pastor. He knows all this information about all these uh, incredible things that have happened within church history. He knows theology like the back of his hand, and I could do all of that without knowing Jesus Christ. I can memorize facts and figures and statistics all day long. So from that moment of that Starbucks, I said, okay, um, if theology does not change the way I live today, it's bad theology. If this doesn't press me into how I love Jesus Christ today, how I shepherd my family, how I shepherd my MMC, how I shepherd my church, if this theology does not crank in me some growth within the gospel, then I need to stop reading it. And quit worrying about it for now because it's not changing the way I live. I mean, we can argue about it. One of my favorite stories, I wasn't going to tell it because I've told it a ton, but one of my favorite stories was uh, our first year as a church. Uh, we had a guy on our leadership team that was just asking good questions. He'd never really gotten into theology. And, um, so he was asking some good questions about theology, but he was one of those eccentric guys that was just asking everyone. If he had one question, everyone knew it. So he was just asking questions about uh, creationism. Uh, young earth, old earth, what does this really mean? I don't know where I stand, blah, 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 blah. And so uh, he was asked this one guy, and so word got out that one of our leaders was asking these questions. Uh, and so through the grapevine, of course, he was, uh, I, I don't know this guy, so I don't want to totally blast him, but um, kind of as cowardly as the, the synagogue leader who preached not to Jesus but preached to the crowd. Word got back to me that this guy said, if this man is on your leadership team at the branch, I will never come to the branch. So this clear divisiveness happening from one guy just asking theological questions. Now this one guy was a freshman, and so I just wanted to get a meeting with him and just get some time, and just my simple question to start off the conversation was, uh, I understand you're concerned about this theological difference, uh, but do you realize that within four months ago, you had to raise your hand to go to the bathroom? That you're a freshman in college. Four months ago, you had to get permission to go tinkle. Now you have every theological issue from the Bible figured out. If this is true, you should come on staff like tomorrow. You should just lead our church. See, theology can get divisive and it can separate and it can lead us away from the good, genuine truth that is the gospel. So, is this you? Is this us? Have we grown up understanding and knowing and processing scripture so much so that it's actually led us away from the gospel, not towards the gospel? Have you been a leader within your youth group and within your college ministries for this whole time and every step of the way you're going, I don't really believe any of this. I've got just as much doubts, just as much questions, but because I know a little bit, they keep throwing me up here. Now verse 13, in going, sorry, going back to Luke 13, 13. Here's the other side of the coin. 
And Jesus laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now I've known a bunch of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to use the word bad dudes, but I've known a lot of people that have some crazy testimonies, that have gone through crazy things in their life they've done, and seen things that most of us like just think just happens in the movies. But when God gets a hold of their life, they are so changed and they are so driven by their faith because they understand who they were before Christ and who they are now because of Christ. That there's no tradition. In Matthew, you don't have to flip there, but in Matthew 15, Jesus is going after the Pharisees and he says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? With these guys that have just come in and have drastically changed because of the faith in them, they don't know traditions. I love to see them when they come in because they just are sticking out like a sore thrum. They don't know where they're supposed to go, but all they know is they want to learn more about God and they want to do what he's asking them to do. So this woman for 18 years has been bent over and God healed her. Faith has come. Her heart had been regenerated because what Christ has done for her. My question is, do you really know the sinfulness of your heart before you were saved? What does faith look like for you? If faith leads to works, then do you understand faith? Because if we don't, if we don't understand all that God has rescued and saved us from, then it's so quick and it's so natural for us to get to a work-based system. It's so understanding for us to go, I don't really know, who, I'm just, this is just what I'm supposed to do, so I don't really have faith, but I nail the works. I can kill this area. It just kind of cracks me up when, when people come into the branch, uh, because we're, we're so simplistic on purpose. And people want to jump on a leadership day one, and they want to do this and do this and do this, and what can I do to help, and just get involved in MC. Yeah, 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 I've got that, Pastor Bill. What else can I do? No, seriously, be faithful at the gathering, get involved with an MC. Sure, sure, but like, what else? Do you guys have a choir? Do you guys have like a committee of committees I can get a part of? What do you have? Blah, blah, blah. Calm down. Your, your framework needs to be adjusted here. There's not tons of works. You get involved in a community and you make disciples every day of your life. It's that simple. It does not have to be complicated. But a lot of us can resonate with the Pharisee and with all these rules of the Sabbath because we feel just uncomfortable. We feel, you walk into a place like this and you go like, gosh, I can never wear what the pastor's wearing in my home church. You get into a place like this and you go, wait, uh, where's the ugly red carpet that the church split over 12 times? Where's the, and I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong, but I am saying it's all extra biblical. It's not from the text. Not from God's word. So have we convoluted and complicated? Keep the Sabbath holy. We don't have to add any more rules to that. You rest or God will make you rest. Throughout the Old Testament, this is one of the commandments that he says, you rest or I will kill you. God, right? This is how serious he takes the Sabbath but we don't have to add our own man-made rules to this. What we should look like is the woman who had been uh, slaved by this um, crippling back through satanic spirits for 18 years, and God had just saved her. 
One of the things I love to read as we've gone through Luke is all the times that Jesus performs a miracle and says, well, wait, but, but don't tell anyone. The, the time is not ready. Don't tell anyone. And what do they always do? Go screaming through the streets what God has done for them. They can't not talk about it because they knew who they were and they know God has rescued them, has saved them, and they've got to talk about it. Flip over to Ephesians 2. We'll, we'll end, end with this. I don't think there is a scripture in the Bible that, that is more clear on what the gospel is than Ephesians 2. For me at least. I'm sure there are other great scriptures, but for me, Ephesians 2 just resonates. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now let me just stop here for a second. If you have not came to this conclusion on yourself, I'm fearful for you. If you've not came to this conclusion, if you've not seen through scriptures that there once were a time where you just followed the course of the world, the spirits of the air, that we were all by nature children of wrath, that there was not enough good things, enough rules, enough regulations that you could keep, that there was nothing you could do to earn your salvation, that we were just like this woman, that in 18 years she'd probably tried everything, everything and could not straighten herself up. Literally, if we've not got to this point, we've tried everything and we cannot straighten ourselves up, I would probably press in and argue you're probably living a works-based approvalness than a faith by works. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but because of God and his richness through Christ has saved us by grace, verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not of your own doing, is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Verse nine, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Verse nine, not a result of works so no one can boast. We cannot be like these religious leaders that work our way into heaven. Paul is clear based on the gospel, that is not possible. The salvation is only through grace, through Jesus Christ, not by works so that no one can boast. So he's been working to enter into the kingdom. Stop it. There's not enough in you. There's not enough grace. There's not enough effort in you to ever appease God's wrath. It's not possible. 
There's this whole the- theology of this a Pelagia, semi-Pelagian theology that thinks there's just enough in us. If we just try hard enough, we can enter our way in. And Scripture is saying that is not possible. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So listen, church, are we going to perform good works? Yes. But what has to take place first is faith. What has to take place first is salvation. What has to take place first is regeneration of our souls. And I know that there's people in this room, they're going, I'm just tired. I know I should do this and this and this. I know I'm supposed to be an MC. I know I'm supposed to read my Bible. I know I'm supposed to, and I'm just tired. I feel like I can't keep up with all these things that I'm supposed to do. I love to cuss. I can't quit. I love to, and you could just fill in the blanks. I'm just tired of trying to do this. That I, I would encourage you with Matthew 11:28. 28. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is required of us? Faith. What is required of us? If we just focus on the main, keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus Christ, works will come. It's impossible. It's like healing this woman or healing anyone in the scriptures and them telling them to be quiet. That's not going to take place. So if you're heavy laden, if you're tired, if you're worn out from trying to do this Christian thing, I would urge you and I'd press in. It's probably because you don't know Jesus and you have no faith. It's probably because you're just trying to work your way into salvation. You're just trying to do what's all that's been expected of you your entire life, but you missed out on the most important thing, which is faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, we end every gathering the same. As believers, we go and we break this bread, which represents Christ's body, and we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. This is just a screaming picture of we cannot do this, church. Christ has done us for us. This is the message of the gospel, that we don't have all these rules and regulations that we have to stick to in order to appease God. Through Christ, we've already been appeased. God has already redeemed us by his body, by his blood. So pastor, are you telling me to stop trying? Kind of. For some of you. Some of you I'm asking you just to press in to what's going on in your heart. If you've been trying and trying and trying, why? Because what's probably going on in there is it's all work-based. You've been trying to appease this God. You're trying to earn your salvation. But if we know and understand faith, we understand, we live out Ephesians 2, that we were once that woman that was bent over, we were once Lazarus in the tomb, that we were once the cripple, that we were once, and we could do nothing to save ourselves. Not enough good deeds, not enough effort, not enough anything. Christ is the one who can. That is why we worship, that is why we sing, that's what presses us into scripture, that's what presses us out into the world, that's what motivates Kyle and Jen and some of you to move to Milledgeville to see disciples, to make disciples. That is the motivation, it's the faith, it's not the works. And faith leads to works. So here's what I'm asking for us. If you get this, if you understand that it's only by grace that you stand here today, 
when we take communion, I want you just to celebrate and remember all that Christ has done, that he didn't have to. He didn't have to send his son. He didn't have to redeem us. He would be fully just and right to sit in his heavenly throne and let this world just end. He's a just king. That would have been fine. But he didn't do that. For him who knew no sin, he sent him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But for the others in this room, that if you're just tired, if you're worn out, if Christianity has always been this tasteless thing that you just had to do, I just want you to wrestle. I want you to think and consider and ponder, has there ever been a moment where you've actually seen real faith in your life? Have you known who you were before Christ and how Christ has redeemed you? And if you're just not a believer in this room, I'm I'm glad you're here. I'm so thankful that you're here. And I I hope you hear the true message of the gospel, the true message of reconciliation, that we're not here to put all these rules and regulations on you. We're here to give you freedom, which is only found in Christ. So as we pray and as we go into communion, here's what I'm going to ask. Again, believers living through faith, by faith, and celebrate. Others of you, you just need to ponder and sit. That if you don't quite know if you're actually a believer yet, we would ask you not even to participate in communion because you don't know what it means. This is so sacred for us, what we get to remember what Christ has done. And and biblically, if you're just not a believer, this just isn't a time for you. But I would ask you to sit and pray and consider. Has faith really come alive in your heart? Are you just wearing yourself out by living through rules and regulations? So let's pray. Father, I think one reason we have such a hard time with this is no one in this planet gives us the love and the freedom that you give us. Father, your love for us is is not normal and we don't see it anywhere else. God, when all we do, all we've done is just been born into sin, there's nothing good about us. You send your son to redeem us. That your love for us knows no bounds. And Father, we, we just don't understand a love like that. And so Jesus, we, we pray this morning that, that if we've been trying to earn salvation, we've been trying to earn your love and your grace by doing all these works that we think we're supposed to do. Father, we pray that we would repent of that this morning. Now, would we not be like the Pharisees? Would we not be like the leaders of the synagogues and temples who followed all these rules and all these regulations, not from faith, but Father, for the approval of man to look good, to separate ourselves from the rest of the world? Would that not be the way that we live? Father, would we live out Ephesians 2, that we were once the enemies of you, that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but because of what you've done for us, you've made us alive in you. And we've been created for good works because we've been saved through faith. And so, Father, would you convict hearts this morning for those that have just been playing the part because they feel like that's what's expected of them. God, I pray that you would just speak to souls right now. God, I know that there are people in this room that are just tired. 
They're tired of doing the right things. They're tired of trying to earn salvation. They're just tired. They're one step away from punting the church forever. God, I pray that they would know what true faith is, the freedom that's found in you. That your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So as we take communion this morning, would we remember that? Would we remember, but because of your glory, all that you've done for us. And church, as you're sitting and praying and considering and pondering, what drives your works? Is it faith? Or is it approval? Is it expectations? I would encourage you before this morning is over to find the one that has brought you to find one of us and talk through and pray and consider what's happening because I'm, I'm worried for you. I'm fearful for you that you might be playing the part and never have known the goodness of God and that you're not walking in the true freedom that Christ offers but you're still walking in a slave of sin. Father, thank you. Thank you for creating a way when there was no way. Thank you for taking our place on that cross. Thank you for giving us the faith to believe. And thank you for creating good works for us that we can walk into as sons and daughters of you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.